we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from New York City. We are joined by two friends who can give us some insight into Breaking news and big stories from this week. Steve Vladek. Steve is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and is the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, David, I am living the dream. You are living the dream. I can I can see that. And we are also joined by Mara Rudman. Mara is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Center for American Progress and previously served as Deputy Assistant of the President for National Security Affairs in the Obama and Clinton administrations. Where are you roughly, Mara? I am very close to Litchfield, Connecticut, where it turns out that that reception is amazingly spotty. Well, it's not a bad place to be, though. Nice place to be in the summertime. Well, we'll... uh, Carry on the conversation uh, as long as you can. And if you drop off, you just join us back. I wanted to start with you, actually, Mara, because there was breaking news today again about the case pertaining to the FBI going into Mar-a-Lago and getting out a lot of documents. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking, you know, how much of the news of the past week has been about the motives of the FBI and the backlash to the FBI action, and how little of it has been about the fact that Donald Trump poses a serious national security risk with all of this. And I know you and I both worked with people who, when they they ran afoul of the laws on this, it cost them dearly. And I was just wondering how you feel about the fact that the national security element of this story has just dropped off the radar. It is quite, quite frustrating. But at this point, I also, we're operating in a world that's different, of facts applying very differently in different periods of time, in different ways. And uh, so deeply frustrating. 
I'm reading the same things you are about the people we both know well who are referenced as, as kind of data points with a very different set of criteria applying now. And we also both know uh, just how serious it is the allegations against material reported that has been taken from Mar-a-Lago. What is happening now uh, is so much, so much more uh, serious to our national security than the uh, earlier incidents that have been that have been reported as well. Yeah, no, I regularly have seen people saying, you know, reality winners spend four plus years in jail for taking one document. She's not one of the people I was referring to. A lot of people have, have seen their their lives ruined and their freedom lost for a lot less than what Donald Trump obviously did. And somehow he's managed to change the subject. Do you think that's going to change anytime soon, Steve? We had a hearing today in which a judge said that he will consider releasing a redacted portion of the affidavit. Do you think what's going to come out is going to have any information in it, or it's just going to be a lot of black lines and white paper? I think we'll have some information in it, David. I think whether it's information that actually materially advances this conversation remains to be seen. Color me a little skeptical that DOJ would agree to unredact information about, for example, what specific material they were looking for, information about how they came to believe that this material was still in Mar-a-Lago. And so I think, you know, we're not much further than we were this time last week, which is that as is true, unfortunately, but I think inescapably about most major federal criminal investigations, a lot just depends on how much faith you do or don't have in the integrity of the attorney general of the United States. For better or for worse, I have a fair amount of faith in the integrity of Merrick Garland. There are processes in place to test that faith if it turns out that this was all a witch hunt. But I think, you know, this is, in any other case, we wouldn't be surprised by how little we knew at this juncture. And I think the problem is that because it's former President Trump and because of folks on his team who are insisting on things they know to be untrue or not common practice, we're in a place where there's this demand for information that we don't usually expect to have available at this point. As I was saying before we started this to Steve, I sat down and I started jotting down Breaking news from today or from this week, important issues that had a legal element to it associated with Trump or January 6th. And there were just a ton. And it's like supposed to be the middle of August. And we're all supposed to be on vacation, you know, with Mara in Litchfield, Connecticut or someplace. And it's just not happening. Every day something is going on. So I want to just fire some of them at you guys and get your reactions and and Mara, the, the next one that I'd like to talk about is one that I find a little bit baffling that also sort of overlaps with the issue of national security. And that is that the inspector general at the Department of Homeland Security has been found in the course of the past week, not only to have withheld information, including, you know, but that the Secret Service, which reports up through him, withheld information about a direct threat to the Speaker of the House for 24 hours from January 5th to January 6th of 2020. And this guy has said, Kafari has said he's not going to cooperate. And maybe, Mari, you understand this better than I do. Why does this guy still have a job? Understandable question. The inspector general at each of our agencies operate 
with extraordinary independence. And that is for some very good reasons in terms of what their role is and historically have been. But I think it leads to a terrible problem, a terrible situation, which is the one that we are in now. And particularly so, I would say, at an agency like the Department of Homeland Security, which itself, again, in Democratic and Republican administrations, has tremendous turf battles between and among its various entities, has a secretary that historically has much less power than the leaders of other agencies. So it's just, it's an agency ripe with having an overlay of the independent, the inspector general authorities that can really run amok, which I think is the situation we're in now there. If, If I can just follow up on that, I'd certainly understand and respect the independence of inspector generals. And in fact, feel that's very important to preserve. Trump didn't feel that was important to preserve. Trump was frustrated that there were inspector generals out there that could trigger or process whistleblower attacks and so forth. And so he decided he was going to remove some of them and replace them with unqualified people. As it happens, one of the ones that he removed and replaced with an unqualified person resulted in this guy, Kafari, and he was one of the unqualified people. He didn't have any qualifications for this job, except that they perceived he was going to be loyal to Trump. And yet, because we respect the independence of the office, we're maintaining somebody in the office who was put there because he wasn't independent. Isn't that troubling? Yes. And it is what you have captured there is precisely the problem we have that a number of us who have been in government and those we know play by the rules and respect the rule of law, and respect the processes that govern the very essence of our democracy. And in President Trump, we have someone who has shown very clearly it's the exact opposite of that, and seems to again and again not be held accountable for it. David, I would take it even one step further, which is that I think part of the problem is not just what Mara says about folks who have experience and who have done this by the book, I think the problem is that there are so many on Trump's side who just assume that people do things for whatever, for immediate political gain and not for institutional reasons, who just assume that the whole system is corrupt and so therefore can't fathom that the folks who are actually doing their jobs to the best of their ability in good faith are actually not just out to get President Trump. And so I think this kind of asymmetrical, you know, asymmetrical distribution is a problem in both directions. It's a problem in that, you know, there's going to be sort of scruples by the Biden administration that we wouldn't have seen during the Trump years. And there's going to be an assumption on the part of Trump supporters that there are no such scruples because there weren't during the Trump years. And so it's like a it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't in some respects. No question about it. Mara, from a policy point of view, we've seemed to have reached kind of the nadir, I hope or are approaching the nadir of the logical extension of the Ronald Reagan arguments, not just big government is bad, but any government is bad. And that, you know, for the past 40 years, there's been a sort of acceleration of these GOP arguments to the point that now you've got Trump and DeSantis and Newt Gingrich and other leaders in the party going, you know, we should be able to fire all civil servants or the top 50,000 civil servants. We don't trust the FBI. We don't trust the Department of Justice. We ought to 
defund the FBI. And essentially, it's almost anarchic. You know, the whole idea is, let us take over the government so we can destroy the government. And it's also dangerous because essentially what it's saying is, let's get rid of all the people who are public servants who serve the Constitution and replace them only with people who are political appointees who serve serve their leader and value political loyalty over national loyalty. Am I overstating that threat, Mara? I agree with you on the threat. I think I would characterize it differently because I think this. I think that what uh, Trump and his cohorts are doing is far, far away, actually, from from where Ronald Reagan was. So, in other words, I don't think this is just about a small government or dismantling government, which is part of the the Reagan ethos or, or theory for. Trump, it is about the state of me. So the latter part of what you were saying, I don't think that he was looking to necessarily make things smaller or have a kind of theory of the case of things running differently. He he has consistently shown, and unfortunately, he's got he's convinced a lot of way more people in the country than I would wish were the case that the state is an individual, that there is not a, a greater oath to the Constitution. The contrast, for example, with what the way that Liz Cheney has been talking about democracy and the Constitution being of critical importance. And, and Liz Cheney is probably a small government person, but there's a real distinction there between those two. And I think we can disagree. I can certainly disagree with folks on the size of government, the effectiveness of government. But the bright line is that those who serve in government are serving the Constitution. They're not serving an individual. Yeah. And of course, by taking the right side of that argument, Liz Cheney got obliterated by 40 percentage points in a Republican primary. Let's move on to another, and I really could go in a hundred directions here, uh, Steve, but I did notice that the DOJ has launched a kind of a wide subpoena to the National Archives for all information pertaining to White House records on or around January 6th. And I want to get your comment on that, but I want to marry it to another development, which was in this hearing today about the affidavit, one of the things that the Justice Department said was that we were at an early stage in this investigation pertaining to the the, the mishandling of these records. And it strikes me that 18 months after January 6th, to be subpoenaing the archives about these records seems a little late. Is this a sign of the plotting Justice Department pursuing things meticulously? Or do you look at this and say, maybe they're playing catch up? I don't know. And I think it's, it's important to, to say when we don't know things. I, I could see it being both, both ways. I, I think part of the question is, are there new materials they did not realize that NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, had in its possession until some other development, be it testimony to the January 6th committee be it material that was uncovered through some other investigation, or is this just sort of conducting the search in sort of this circular pattern? And again, there are folks who know the answer to that question. The three of us, I think, are none of them. And so we end up back where we started, which is so much of this really does depend on how much faith we have in the integrity of the Justice Department. And this is why I think we are stuck to some degree in this impossible to resolve fight between Democrats who, if they have any problem with the Justice Department, it's that they haven't gone further 
and Republicans who think, you know, DOJ even trying to look at any of this at all is illegitimate. And I think that tension is not going to be solved by any of these individual one-off developments. It's only going to be resolved, I think, by some kind of concrete proof of wrongdoing by President Trump that not even at least a number of his supporters can defend. You mean truth other than having him on tape or truth other than having him have the boxes and returning them? I mean, David, you know the history far better than I, but you know, for, for Nixon, right, the smoking gun tape was a real turning point where it was, you know, there were there were a number of Republicans still supporting Nixon as late as July of 74 until the smoking gun tape was finally released to the public. And so there's something about irrefutable, unfalsifiable evidence that you know, isn't going to convert everybody, but is going to at least perhaps finally leave out on the fringe those who just are never going to be persuaded at all. My caution on that, I think that this is sadly such a different time than Nixon and Watergate and smoking guns because there are such widely disparate views on what irrefutable facts are and in fact what facts are at all. And what I agree with you on is I think that there will be things that come out that will move some people. But I think those are likely, hopefully those, those are people in the center and then, and, you know, slightly over from there and the cadre that is you know, around a Liz Cheney or a Mitt Romney. But I don't think it's realistic to expect that it's anywhere, that there is any item that will get to the kind of sea change in views of the folks immediately around or inclined to be supporters of, uh, of President Trump. I still think it's important. I think we have to pursue it. I just think we should be realistic about the kind of shift that is possible. I, 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 agree, I agree with all that. The only thing I would say is the only possible sort of cleavage here that I think doesn't get enough attention is those who see themselves as Trump's natural successors in the party, right? I mean, if I'm Ron DeSantis and I'm trying to figure out how I find a way past Trump into the front of the 2024 Republican presidential field, you know, maybe this is part of how that story gets built. We're not there yet. I mean, I think that much is clear. But just insofar as like what are going to be the big moments going forward, I guess that's that's one of the things I'm looking for, at least. Yeah, I do have this uh, share of you that the mayor has expressed that it is a very different time. Because from the Trump campaign onward, there have been many instances where we had irrefutable evidence. And that didn't matter to the supporters of Trump. He was on tape saying grab him by the whatever, or he was on tape saying, Russia, come and help us get Hillary Clinton's things. He was on tape at Helsinki. He was known to have handed classified materials over to the Russians. He was known to why he was he fired Comey, and there were tapes as to why he fired Comey. There, you know, I, mean, I could go on and on and on. There are lots of examples of this. And to the point that I think people are numb to it, you know, another thing that I, I find kind of shocking, find kind of shocking Steve, this week was, you know, there are revelations about unbelievable breaches of election security in Michigan, Arizona, these other places where Republicans have gone in, got access to machines, were taking pictures of the insides of these machines. And, you know, in any other time or circumstance or an alternative rational universe, that would be smoking gun and, and also produce outrage. And here it's just, oh, more, this is more politics. What, what do you think about those revelations? It's consistent with a pattern where all of the fraud and other misconduct committed during the 2020 election or by, has been almost entirely by Republicans. I guess I, I think it's been clear for a while 
that election integrity and election security have been basically this false flag operation based, you know, on the part of, of Republicans to justify further incursions into access to the polls. That's certainly been true here in Texas, for example, to justify running candidates for secretary of state in some of these jurisdictions who are election deniers. And I guess, I mean, to me, this is sort of tying us back in circles, but man, do I think there was a missed opportunity, you know, thanks largely to Senator Manchin for the Democrats to actually push through national legislation that would have made some of these these shenanigans harder to repeat in the future. And my fear is that the absence of that legislation means they're only more likely to repeat in the future. And, And David, alarmingly, perhaps next time in an election where it's closer and where the littlest variations could actually be outcome determinative to a degree that they just weren't in 2020. I disagree here, and I find myself in an odd position to disagree just on a, on a few a few points. The, the electoral situation and what's happening in these different states and how relatively relatively small amounts of attention and repercussions is getting terribly troubling, of course. Again, things that are threatening the heart of our democracy. I do not think it's fair to talk about this in terms of Republicans and Democrats. There are far-right radical extremists that may or may not have we will see how much of a party they have co-opted. But these are radicals. These are extremists. I, they are not everyone in a given party. And I don't think I, I am as frustrated as Steve that the voting rights legislation didn't go through. I would not pin that on one person. I think there are a variety of challenges we had in counting the votes. I think it's part of the reason it's critically important that the Electoral Count Act gets done this fall, and that being led by Mitt Romney and a bipartisan group with him. Where I take some better feeling is the groups that are coming together in a bipartisan way. We've had three major pieces of legislation that will make a significant difference in the country. Dave, to your earlier, to your earlier point about, about government, I would say in partnership with the private sector, really changing the nature of what's possible in the country, the Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act several months ago, at the end of last year, and the um, Inflation Reduction Act that just went through major, major, major pieces of legislation, profound effects on the country. And with the exception of the Inflation Reduction Act, bipartisan, very much bipartisan support for those. By the way, I'm just saying to the audience, typically our podcasts are about 45 minutes and I take a little bit of a break here and I'll say we're going to say goodbye to the general public, but uh, it's the late summer and sometimes we do podcasts that are slightly shorter. This one's only going to be about 30 minutes, so I'm not going to take a break, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go and become a member. You should go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member, help support what we're doing coming into the 2020 elect, 2022 election, coming into the 2024 election. These kind of discussions are really important. And if you value them and you're not a member, this is a really, really good time to become one. Steve, normally in normal times, and I think we've established we're not in normal times, the idea that a former mayor of New York and a former U.S. attorney and a former guy was the, you know, boasted about being, you know, the chief legal advisor to the president of the United States was told this week that he is a target of a legal investigation and then went and spent six hours behind closed doors in Fulton County, Georgia where it seems like he could be in really hot water. In past discussions, there's been a kind of a sense that Fulton County may be the place Trump and co. are in greatest legal jeopardy based on this week's revelations 
Do you feel that more strongly, less strongly? How do you, how do you feel about that? Just as strongly, um, you know, I, I mean, I, not to sort of beat a dead horse here, but I do think there's a difference when there are tapes. And, and the one thing that we know for sure about Fulton County is, Lordy, there are tapes. And so in that respect, I think it's not surprising to me that we're hearing a lot more about efforts by Rudy Giuliani, by Senator Lindsey Graham, by others close to President Trump to interfere with the certification of the results in Georgia than was David surely going on in other states as well, but perhaps without the tapes. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, Giuliani seems to be in quite a bit of legal jeopardy. I think another thing that's going to be fascinating to see play out is, you know, Lindsey Graham is trying to block his testimony. He's trying to block the subpoena for him to appear before the grand jury. He lost in the district court. He's asked the 11th Circuit, the federal appeals court in Atlanta, for a stay of that decision pending appeal. You know, it's not hard to imagine if he loses there that he goes to the Supreme Court. And then all of a sudden, the Supreme Court, which has tried very, very, very hard to stay out of anything and everything relating to, you know, the 2020 election, might get dragged right back into it. So, you know, I think this is a story that's flying at least to some degree under the radar only because there are so many other stories that are even more stunning. But this is folks should not sleep on what's happening in Fulton County. Clearly, this is not the end of this of the of the of the investigation down there. Clearly, it's not. But it's still got a few stages, though, doesn't it? Because the, the way this one works is this is a special kind of a grand jury. And if it finds enough information, you need another grand jury to indict these people. So this is months and months away from any action, isn't it? It is. But I think, you know, one of the things that's going to be true about what's happening in Fulton County that may not be true about, for example, the January 6th committee is I don't think it's on the same potentially expiring clock, right? That it's it's unlikely, for example, the control of the Fulton County District Attorney's Office is going to turn over anytime soon. And so I think, you know, it's this is part of why this is, I think, not going away for Giuliani, for Lindsey Graham, and potentially for others who are caught up in it. Whether that's a sign that there's other stuff out there that we're unaware of or whether there's something unique about the Fulton County investigation, David, I think is something we just don't know, at, at least at this point. I'm doing this exactly backwards, I think, in, in, in some respects, but uh, you know, following along with you know, everybody else in the media, Mara, and that is that almost certainly the largest government uh, initiative with regard to climate change is more important than all of this. Almost certainly lowering healthcare costs is more important or fairer taxation and, you know, getting more revenue for the government from tax shunning corporations is more important than this. And as I look at things, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the Biden administration has finally had a moment during the summer, I guess, maybe when everybody was at the beach, but have a moment where people are going, holy mackerel, you know, you look at the past month and you had the uh, the support for the veterans. You had, as you pointed out, the Chips and Science Act. You had Finland and Sweden accession to NATO approved. You had um, a bipartisan, at least to some extent, piece of gun legislation that nobody thought was possible. This Inflation Reduction Act, nobody thought was possible. You look at that in conjunction with the Infrastructure Act, the American Rescue Plan, the number of judges appointed, the re-entering the Paris Accord expanding NATO, leading NATO, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And this administration has really had a remarkable 18 months for which it has not gotten much credit. Having said that, as you look to November, 
my instinct and in looking at some of the ads that I've seen is that the defining issues in November may not be either the legal issues we've just discussed or the president's record. They may have more to do with the Dobbs decision, the, the rights attack on, on women's rights, pending looming attacks on LGBTQ plus rights, on contraception and other kinds of things. What's resonating with the public and and why are some of these things not resonating? What resonates with people most immediately are the things that uh, affect their own lives, their children's lives, their ability to provide for their children and their hope that the people around them have a pathway to a better future and and in a week-to-week moment are not losing ground, are gaining ground. And so that is part of why the extent to which gasoline prices, food prices going up really was a, a major shifting force. And it, it has to pay attention to anything else when you're trying each week to figure out how to make ends meet. So it's helpful that, that it's important that gas prices are going down. It will be tremendously important that drugs will be, pharmaceuticals will be more affordable as a result of this legislation. And so those kinds of things will make a real difference for people. I think that the decisions by the Supreme Court, as you point out, the very radical right decisions that really take away people's freedom also have a profound effect because you see kids deciding to go to school in different states than they might have previously based on, on what, the, what they think the determinations of, of their, the threats to their ability to have a healthy life, to, if they needed to, be able to get an abortion to live with whom they want and love whom they want. All of those things have been put into jeopardy. And so I think that those issues very much are going to be resonating with people in, in November. Some of the pocketbook issues, the getting by day to day, and also the other very near and dear profound effects on people's lives that are now front and center um, and, and affect decisions about where you live and how you live. I certainly hope that's true. It would bode very well for the Democrats. And I might add, by the way, in a bit of news today, uh, the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, seemed to conclude that he may remain the minority leader or somebody who holds, who is the leader of the Republicans if he stays on or doesn't stay on would be the minority leader because he says it, right now he seems to think it looks like the Democrats will maintain the hold of the Senate, which even three months ago would have seemed absolutely unthinkable. I want to wrap up, but I was looking at my list here, Steve, and I neglected one thing and it seems significant, the person who is sort of the principal business colleague of the, of, of, of the president of the United States, the CFO of the company called the Trump Organization, today pleaded guilty in New York, is going to go to Rikers Island, which is a very nasty place, for five months and is going to, in October, start testifying against the Trump Organization. There have been some people critical of the approach of the Manhattan DA having not chosen to pursue certain uh, cases against Trump. And some people thought he was letting Alan Weisselberg, this man, the CFO of the Trump Organization, off too easily. What's your take on this other development? We are once again handicapped by not knowing everything that the prosecutors know. My sense of the deal is that Weisselberg is required to testify fully and truthfully about the illicit activity of the Trump Organization and many of the shady business dealings And I assume that from the prosecutor's perspective, you know, getting that on the record will not only benefit the criminal case against the organization, 
but might also help to exert additional pressure on those who could face liability as a result. As between the fantasy land in which, you know, Tish James and the, and the New York state prosecutors were going to be the ones who really brought Trump down and put him in jail and the reality in which, you know, these kinds of prosecutions are always very difficult and prosecuting companies, even companies as apparently shady as the Trump organization often ends up being difficult. You know, I think this is probably a win, just not a win for those who I think are only going to be satisfied if and when President Trump is behind bars. And so, you know, I think that's it's all about sort of what you think the, the potential endgame here is versus what the realistic one is. Absolutely right. What a great summary of a lot of things in a very brief period of time. And uh, to both of you for uh, breaking into the middle of August to join us. Uh, not only am I grateful, I'm sure all of our listeners are grateful. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Mara. Enjoy what remains of your summers. Hopefully we will talk to you again real soon. And hopefully all of you out there who are in our audience will listen to us again real soon because we're going to keep at this day in and day out forever and ever. And, you know, that's another reason to be a member, you know, because that's a long time and you get a lot of benefit from it. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you very much.